Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, if you got your Bible this morning, go ahead and get that out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. If you need a Bible, just lift a hand up. We've got some folks uh, they are going to walk around and pass those out. As Brian said, we're entering into a new series this morning called Meals with Jesus, uh, Discovering God's Blessing around the table. What we're going to do is over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the book of Luke and we're going to begin to look at seven meals uh, that Jesus has with individuals. And as we uh, look at these meals, we're going to look at the people he has the meals with uh, and the conversations that are had around those meals. And so as we enter into this new series, I started thinking that the dinner table, uh, the kitchen table, the dinner table, uh, I think there's two things. One, I think the dinner table can be one of the most glorious representations of what the feasts of the kingdom of God are going to be like. Like if you had a mom or a grandmother, somebody growing up that could cook, like you know the joy and the pleasure of sitting around the table uh, and just feasting on your favorite meal. Uh, growing up as a kid, New Year's Eve's for us, my mom and my dad, they would always cook like an elaborate dinner. Uh, as kids, we would get all dressed up and we'd, you know, my sisters would wear a dress or I'd, you know, we'd put on shirts as the guys and tuck them in. We'd sit around and have like a candlelit dinner with the steaks and, you know, sauteed mushrooms and uh, there's just always such uh, excitement towards our New Year's Eve family dinner. Uh, there's so many good memories. And I think on the same side, the dinner table could also be the scariest place on earth, depending on what was cooked. Uh, if you grew up with uh, somebody in your family who couldn't cook, uh, or if you're a picky eater, any picky eaters? Uh, like if somebody cooked something and you thought there's no way I could ever put that in my mouth, the, the dinner table could also be a terrifying place as a kid. I remember uh, many, many dinners. Being a picky eater in my house was never an option. Uh, it's not even something my parents would entertain. And so there were many dinners that my siblings and I did not want for dinner that we ate for breakfast cold out of the fridge the next morning. And so we learned at a young age, this is what's cooked. Uh, this is what we eat, whether you like it. Or not, and I even I called my mom to verify this story this week. But there was a time uh, I've got a middle brother who uh, was rather hard-headed as a kid, and I'll never forget one night we had sat down for dinner. Uh, me and my sister and my dad, we sat down, we ate dinner, uh, and my mom, like my brother, had asked for something, and she was just trying to teach him some manners, and was like, hey, you got you to say please. And this kid was like, no, I'm not saying please. And so we got done eating. Uh, my sister and dad and I drove to the church. We went to Awana's and youth group that night, drove back home after being there for an hour and a half or so, and as we were pulling in the driveway, my brother had just said please after a three-hour uh, stalemate with my mom. And so the dinner table that night for my mom was uh, probably the source of most of her gray hairs. Uh, but we look at and we remember uh, what are the memories around the table? And in the culture of Jesus in Israel, in the Middle East, back in Jesus' time, but even still very much so now, that culture, uh, the, the, the surrounding of a meal had a very, a very intimate meaning to it. Like to share a meal with somebody was a very intimate space. Carolyn Steele says that few acts are more expressionship than the shared meal. She says, someone with whom we share a meal is, uh, sorry, someone whom we share food with is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. And then Robert Karras will write that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And we got to see a picture of this when a group and a team of us on uh, last year's epic trip, we went over to the Holy Land. And Atta, who was our Muslim tour guide, him and his family, he's got, I think he had three sons and a wife and the sons, a couple of sons were married and they had grandkids. And, and there was a team of, I think there's 30 to 35 of us on this trip. And Atta said, hey, I want to I wanna host you guys at my home for a meal. 
And, and even as soon as we got off the plane, and as soon as we met Atta and we began our trip through the Holy Land, Atta went and bought a loaf of bread and he tore the loaf of bread. And he made sure everybody had a piece. And what Atta was saying was like, I'm sharing a meal with you guys. And in doing so, you guys are no longer just uh, the attendees to my tour guide, but we are actually now entering in. I'm saying, hey, I see you as family. And then Atta hosted 35 individuals uh, to their little bitty town of Wadi Fukin in Palestine. This beautiful little courtyard overgrown with natural uh, olive trees and his garden for he and his family. And him and his family provided a meal uh, for over 30 uh, Americans. And as we sat there and shared this meal, and, and as I looked at the picture even of that meal together, thinking that there was different uh, religions represented at that table, there's different races, there's different ages, different genders, different nationalities, different first languages spoken, but in all of the differences. And then what we're going to see is Jesus represents time after time in these shared meals that despite the differences, that there's so much unity that can be had by a shared meal. There's so much impact that can take place over a table. I was thinking even this last week, there's a family in this church who my wife and I first moved to Monroe and, and we're new and we didn't know anybody and we're kind of getting our feet wet here. They invited us over to a meal at their home. And I remember sitting at that table and Grace and I left that night and we thought, we do not fit in with these people. We're, we are, uh, we're kind of out of our element a little bit here. But time and time again, these, uh, this family had us come sit at their table. And we shared good food together. And we shared laughs and relationship was deepened. And time and time and time again, uh, we were able to have just intimacy around a meal. And so we're going to begin this morning in Luke chapter 5, the first meal that is shared. And so I want to pray for us, and then we're, we're going we're to dive in. And before I pray, I want, I want to preface with this. I think this is just incredible, uh, something the Lord began to show me a week or so ago. One, as we sit here this morning, but two, as you spend your own time. Brian, uh, weekly, he says, far more important than anything that will be said on this stage is what God wants to say to you through your own time with him. And as I was praying in preparation for uh, this morning, just beginning to pray and realize, God, the spirit, your spirit, the Holy Spirit that resided inside of Jesus as, it's, as the third part of the Trinity, as we read this story today, the Holy Spirit was present in this story because the spirit was present in Jesus. And now through this mystery, which I don't fully understand, nor will I think any of us fully understand, that same spirit that shared this meal with Levi and these tax collectors and talked to the Pharisees 2,000 years ago, now lives inside of us. So as we study and as we read and as we open up the word now, it should blow our mind that the same spirit present at this meal is present here right now. So what I want to do is pray and ask Holy Spirit, you who were there at this meal, will you help reveal to us in wisdom what your intentions, what the conversation, what you were wanting to express to those people that night? Will you make that, that same thing clear to us this morning? So I just ask if you will join me, join me in prayer. Father, we, we humble ourselves, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will come and speak to all of us. Pray that you will clear distractions, 
Pray that you will silence just the clutter of our mind, the to-do lists, the worries of tomorrow. Help us to be present in the here and the now. Holy Spirit, you are at this meal that we're going to read about and talk about. So will you please help teach us and help us to see and understand the power and the importance uh, of what you wanted said and done then. And Lord, I pray that you will speak through me. Whatever you want said, totally yielded to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It says that Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi or Matthew. Matthew, the, the writer of the first gospel, and Levi here is the same person. He went out and he saw Levi sitting at his tax booth and Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them and said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, well, John's disciples often fasted and prayed, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but years go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. He told them this parable, no one tears a piece out of new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skin, and the wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskin. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. This morning, it's going to be more high challenge than high invitation. Because as I read this story, I see there's a lot of challenge uh, that, that we see in Levi and the conversations that we see around the table. And I think challenge is so good for us, guys. Like we need challenge in life. Challenge and in the preparation for facing a challenge makes us stronger so that when the challenge comes, we're able to accomplish it. And in our journey with Jesus, we need to be challenged at times because as we're challenged, we're strengthened and we're growing stronger so that when we face bigger battles or bigger mountains down our life, we're equipped and we're strong enough to handle them. And so the first challenge that we see this morning is that when Levi was called and invited by Jesus to follow him, Levi's response was, it says, to leave everything and follow Jesus. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first challenge would simply be this. Are we willing to leave everything to follow Jesus and meet him at the table? I love this. When you look at when Jesus would call and invite the disciples to follow him, he would say, hey, drop your nets. Hey, leave what you're doing. Hey, hey, come and follow me. But coming and following me, there was always this prerequisite of sacrifice and surrender to something. And so we read in Levi. Levi or Matthew was a tax collector, so he would have had phenomenal and very high amount of status. He would have had possessions. He would have had wealth. He would have had the nicest clothes. Levi had a lot to give up. Maybe even probably, I would say, more so than Peter and James and John, who were fishermen. Or maybe it was a little bit easier for them to leave. It's like, well, I don't really have much in the first place, so yeah, I'll come and follow Jesus. But Levi had something to leave. 
He had built up uh, a lot of wealth, a lot of possessions. And I love that when the invitation to follow Jesus came, Levi said, I'm willing to leave everything and follow you. I was thinking uh, about a, two, a week or two ago, my students and I, leading up to Easter, we were watching The Passion of the Christ uh, in our core group. And we're sitting in our living room, and the first week we watched as Jesus was bound to the stone and as he was beaten. And the Romans would take these cords, these whips that had multiple cords coming out of them, and they'd intertwine them with glass and with pottery and with these things that as they would whip it across Jesus' flesh, it would grab them like fishing hooks, and as they pulled back, his flesh and his skin would come shredding off of him. And we're watching Jesus, it's obviously a reenactment, but, but as best they could understand, we're watching him being brutally beaten and tortured. And then the next week we watch him getting uh, crucified on the cross and Jesus totally dismembered, totally bloody, disfigured, like he unrecognizably is hanging on the cross. And I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, is that really the Jesus that I'm saying I'm willing to give everything to follow? Am I really willing to leave everything to follow that man right there? And I think we, we, we look at, there was uh, uh, the, the two, you know, sinners, robbers, whatever they were that were crucified next to Jesus. And we can look at them and we can so, uh, be so quick to realize that the, the cross in between the two of them where Jesus was nailed and crucified is the one that you and I deserve to be crucified on. Like as Jesus hung there beaten and bruised and dying and scorned, he was on the cross that you and I should have been hung on in between the other two criminals. And I'm looking, I'm like, God, when I say I confess to follow you, is that really the Jesus that I say I follow? Or do I follow the one of stained glass windows with long blonde flowing hair hanging out with a bunch of sheep? And if we look at the sacrifice Jesus made and say, I'll give anything to follow that man. Levi says, man, when he saw Jesus before the sacrifice he gave, he saw something in that man that says, there is no possession I have that is worth hanging on to to follow him. We see Jesus post-crucifixion and resurrection. I think still for us in a consumeristic culture here in the South in church culture, we're like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, but, like Jesus, I'm willing to give everything to follow you, but my bank account. I'm willing to give you everything to follow you, but my weekends, I'll give everything to follow you but my social media or my Netflix or, or I'm willing to give you everything but. And we think, gosh, man, Levi didn't even see the sacrifice yet Jesus was going to make for him. He said, there is nothing worth hanging on to to follow that man. We see what happens post-crucifixion and resurrection. And the greatest challenge for us here as we open up is am I really willing and truly willing to give everything to follow Jesus. Man, I want to sit at the table with him, guys. Man, to sit and have a shared meal with Jesus. Two things I think that we've got to ask ourselves and even pray and ask God. The first thing is this, what do we need to let go of? What are the things in our life that we just need to leave to follow him. Malachi will say that Jesus comes like a refiner of silver. 
And I can look back over uh, my life and my, my time of following Jesus. And, and early on, there were some things that, that Jesus was like, you've got to leave that to follow me. And Jesus began to do a work and began to heal some old addictions and began to walk a little bit farther down the path. And some things that I didn't realize were an addiction or an issue. Jesus says, hey, you need to leave that and come follow me deeper. And God's constantly refining. And the, the farther we get into our relationship pursuit of Jesus, we realize more and more things that, man, we need to leave to follow him. Like, we need to give up some stuff. We need to ask Jesus, will you refine things out of me? Will you show me what do I need to leave to follow you? What, what, what needs to be cleaned out? What needs to be thrown out? What needs to be refined? And the second thing is this. Where is fear keeping you back from giving your all to Jesus? What do we need to let go of? And in that, what is the fear that is keeping us from doing so? Fear in itself is not an attribute or a quality of God. Fear is a weapon, is a tactic, is a strategy of the enemy. So if there is a place where as you begin to pray, or maybe you could say, man, here's a spot where I can recognize in my life God has said, you need to leave that or give that up. We can maybe look back and think, well, those are also the places where Satan begins to whisper in the ear and like, no, I don't know that I'd do that if I were you. God's saying, man, if you'll just let go of this, there's deeper depth with me and Satan's in the ear whispering, yeah, 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 but is it really worth it? Yeah, but if you give that up, what, what's the risk? And what are people going to think? For me, before I, I gave my heart to Jesus, man, I love it. The only thing I ever wanted to do was play baseball. And I was playing at a Division I school in, in Tennessee. And I remember like, God, I'm afraid if I give everything to follow you, you're going to make me be a missionary in Africa. And I just want to play ball. <laughs> like, I'm afraid. I'm afraid if I say yes to you, you're going to take the thing that I love the most. Right, like there's something for all of us where it's like Satan begins to whisper in the ear. And because fear is not from God, fear is from the enemy, Satan wants to whisper fear into your ear. And when we believe that fear over we believe the invitation to leave everything, we are in essence keeping ourselves handcuffed and in bondage to that which separates us from a deeper depth of following Jesus and meeting him in intimacy at the table. You guys with that? Does that make sense? Fear, Satan wants to keep you bound by fear. So if we can recognize through confession to say, God, here's what my fear is. Confession simply means to tell the truth. Satan cannot stand in truth. He's a God of lies. He cannot be in the presence of truth. And so when we confess in truth telling, saying, God, here's what I'm afraid of to give up to follow you. I believe that opens up the ability for Satan to be silenced. And for Jesus to begin to speak in a little bit more truly into, no, here's the invitation on the backside of leaving everything to follow me. Your resources, your possessions, your old habits, your addictions, whatever that invitation would be, leave it and follow me. And we see Jesus would invite the rich young ruler. He would come and he'd say, Jesus, man, I got it all going on. I obey my mom and dad. I go to church. I'm a pretty good guy. Like, man, there's, there's, what else do I need to do? He'd look at him and say, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And it says he walked away sad and dismayed because he was a man of great possessions. 
And guys, I, I, I'm not saying by any means that, that God is against uh, riches and he's against uh, comfort or he's against providing in abundance. Like, guys, we see God do that for people all the time. But what we don't see is the invitation that Jesus promises that when we follow him, he's just saying, man, come into a life of abundance and pleasure and comfort. That's not the promise. The promise is, no, when you come follow me, and the invitation that we see Jesus speak to all of his disciples is, no, when you come follow me, there's a sacrifice and a cost of something to pay to come and follow me. And I love, even in the book of Acts in the early church, like they took this pretty serious. In Acts uh, chapter 2, it says that all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. It says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And I love this, verse 47. And in doing so, it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I think the paradigm shift for us, excuse me, must take place in realizing that when Jesus calls us, excuse me, to follow him, holding true today, there is a cost, there is something to be given up. And we've got to reconcile in ourselves that what we have, the possessions, the resources, uh, whatever that would be, they, like these are not just our stuff. Like these are gifts and things that, pe- that God has given us to be a part of kingdom impact now. And so if we stay so bound up and well, this is, these are my possessions or that's my addiction or that's my desire, then man, we're just going to miss out on stuff that God wants to do in the kingdom here. Like Jesus didn't die just to get us into heaven one day, but Jesus died so that he could get heaven into us today. Jesus would say in Mark chapter 1 that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's here, it's now. Now I think we can preach that, man, Jesus came for eternal life, and we've got this picture that eternal life starts when I die. But Jesus was saying, no, eternal life starts now. Like you can begin to live into eternal life in the kingdom now. And the invitation from Jesus is, hey, why don't you be willing to leave it, to give up your resources, give up your possessions, saying, God, whatever I have has been given from you anyways, take it. It's yours. And in doing so, refine out of me whatever else I need to give up control over. Get rid of it. Jesus will say, hey, guys, when you you go outside, look at the birds. We just got a bird feeder at my house uh, a week ago. And I was like, I've never been a bird watcher. <laughs> but I'm sitting at my kitchen table the other day and Grace and the boys are gone. I started watching these little birds bouncing around my yard. And God says, hey, when you see the birds, I want you to remember that they don't have jobs. They don't have homes. They don't have a mortgage. They don't have a car. They, they, they can't provide for themselves. And I feed them. When you walk out in the morning, you hear them singing, you hear them flying around, you see them eating bugs out of the ground or seed off the ground. That is literally a picture. God will write, uh, the psalmist will write as God is speaking through the psalmist in Psalm 143. He says, hey, when you see like a deer eating grass, that is literally Yahweh feeding that deer. And Jesus says, hey, when you see those birds, just remember that, that I'm, I'm providing for them. How much more, he says, will your heavenly father not provide for you who were his children? He says, look at the flowers. He said, they don't toil, they don't spin, they don't work, they don't, they're not worried about what the clothes they're going to wear. And he says, 
there is not anyone on earth who is dressed in more splendor and glory than him. Even Solomon in all of his wealth and beauty couldn't compare to the flowers of the field. And I don't think that we'll fully ever understand that and experience that until we're willing to say, Jesus, whatever you want, it's yours anyway. And as they sit around the table, the table becomes filled with many who the religious, who the Pharisees begin to look around and they're like, why are you eating with those people? Like Levi, he, he says, man, there's nothing worth keeping. I've got to go sit around the table with this guy. And, and Levi goes and invites his other tax collectors. And it says others, like whoever the others were, we can, uh, we can kind of piece together that whoever it was, the Pharisees, the religious folks, were like, why are you eating with them? Because again, the, the sign of a, of a meal, of Jesus sitting down to have a meal is a sign of intimacy. So the religious people would look at Jesus and say, why are you creating such intimacy and friendship with those kind of people? They're dirty. Right? And, and I want to pause for a second because, again, I think for us, the, the, the Pharisees, they believed in God's word. They did everything that they thought was going to honor God. They followed the practices. They went to church or synagogue. They went to the temple, right? And we can look at the Pharisees and we can say, gosh, why are we all so judgmental? And realizing that, man, the Pharisees were the church folks. They were the cultural, cultural, religious people. We live in a cultural, religious area here in the South, man. We're in the Bible Belt. There's a lot of cultural followers of God. And it's those people who look at Jesus and like, why are you having a meal with him? They were baffled. The Pharisees were like, we don't understand how a rabbi, how an apparent man of God could ever sit down and share a meal with people who uh, I think if they, if you were growing up, probably wouldn't the people that your mama was like, you ain't hanging out with them. They're going to corrupt your character. They're going to taint your little innocent spirit, right? It's those kind of people Jesus is hanging out with. And and I want to pause for a second and I want to think about, okay, if we're honest with ourselves, is there any group of people, any individuals that we could be honest and say, yeah, I, I've created them to be those people in my mind. It's a different race, people with different political views, people of different economic status, the rich, the poor, the homeless. Is it the man or the woman sitting in jail for a crime that they've committed? Right? Like, like, like we can look at the Pharisees and be like, hey, man, guys, relax. But are we honest enough to, to, to do some reflection say, gosh, is there anyone that we've created as those people who we'd look and say, why are you hanging out with them? You're sharing a meal with those guys? Don't you know they're going to taint your spirit? Don't you know they might affect you negatively? Don't you know they're going to have some negative effect and people may judge you for hanging out with them? And I love this. In that question... Jesus' response, in essence, is this. He says, those people, those are actually the ones that I came for. Those people, those are actually the ones that are going to realize when when healing is offered to them, that they're going to be the ones that receive it. Those people came to the table because they knew that they were sick. And they said, whatever this guy has got to offer, whatever healing he could possibly bring, whatever it was that led Levi and all of his possessions to leave it all to follow him, that I got I to sit with that guy. 
Those people came to Jesus and Jesus says, I didn't come so that the healthy could be made healthier. I came so that the sick could be healed. I didn't come just to call the righteous to myself, but I came to call the sinners and the sick to repentance and to healing. Those people are the ones that came and said, gosh, I realize I'm sick. Man, I need help. I need a healer. I want to come sit at the table with this guy. Who are those people? Jesus says, man, those are the ones that I came for. And it's so sad, too, because then you look at the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they didn't realize that they were sick as well. Their sickness didn't necessarily look like the tax collectors or the prostitutes or the other folks. They didn't realize, man, they were so sick with pride. They were so sick with judgment. They were so sick with gossip and slander. They were sick. Jesus said, I came to bring healing to you guys, but you don't even see it because you're wrapped up in your religion. And so you've got this invitation, guys, for those of you who may come in here this morning like, man, I am sick. I am hurting. Man, I, I am just looking for someone for, to, to help bring healing to my broken, messed up life. Man, I'm here to tell you the good news is that man, he came. Jesus says, I came for you. I came so that you could be healed. And then for the religious folks, if you're taking notes, I'd write this down. Pride and religion are the great deceivers that blind us from receiving that which Jesus came to offer. For the religious, for the churchgoers, for the Pharisees, that if we don't recognize that, that, that our pride, that our judgment, that our looking upon those with disdain as, ah, man, I wouldn't invite them into my home. Not those people, man. Hanging out around my kids, my wife, man, phew. Jesus says, those are the people I came to. So as we look around and Jesus says, no, I want to invite them to my table, realizing, gosh, where do we need to repent of pride and judgment to say, hey, those people just so might be the people that we need to invite to our table. And in doing so, maybe they'll get to see the love of Jesus through us. Right? Like if we actually now begin to go to those people and say, hey, I mean, I know you're hurting. I know you're in pain. I know your life's falling apart. I know you're in need. I know things are breaking and shattering around you. Come to my home. Come to my table. Let me love on you. Let me feed you. Let me sit around. Let me hear your story. Let me see if there's a way that, that, that my family can help comfort you. So you read that the, the early church said, man, when there was need, they just sold stuff. They pulled the resources together and said, man, what do you guys need? And in doing so, we get to be again the vessel that Jesus can use now as the kingdom of God is at hand now to help be the, 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 the doctors in a sense that are going out and bringing these people in to find healing. And I think the church looks a little bit more like a country club sometimes in a hospital. And realizes that, man, this is a place where people can come to find healing. And sometimes it is absolutely an individual who makes excuses and they're like, man, there's nothing you're going to do to convince them to, to come into a church or a house church or to come sit at the table. But I do think that because we look more like a country club than a hospital, that is part of the reason why some people think, man, I got to get cleaned up before I can come to church. 
Man, I heard a guy one time, we, we, I can't remember if he was invited to church or whatever the case was. We were sitting around. He's like, man, if I walked in a church door, I think God would just burn me to the ground right there. I've done way too much. I can't walk into a church. And thinking, God, man, where's that perception? Where's that perspective for him in his mind been groomed where he thinks, man, I'm, I, I'm not welcome with those people. I can't step into a church. Jesus says, no, man, this should look like a hospital. This should look like a place full of beds for people to come in and find healing. And I think some of us, we've come to the Father. We have been healed. And some of us, we, I mean, we just won't get out of our hospital bed. Like we're just taking up space in the bed. So no, I've been healed, but it's more comfortable to just sit here and stay stagnant and immobile. And and I think the challenge for you is, man, get up out of your bed, go out, go find somebody else who is sick, who is hurting, who is dismembered, and bring them in and show them where they can find healing. Show them where they can be restored. And you've been healed. You've received healing from Jesus. Jesus would tell somebody, hey, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. They had a decision to make. I can either lay on the mat and believe I've been healed, or I can get up and experience healing and then go tell somebody where they can come find that healing. Jesus says, those are the people I came for, guys. Man, I want to be a part in our church of seeing people come get healed. We've got to get up out of here and go tell them where they can find it. Because Jesus says, man, I came. I came for them. I came for those people. And I think the, 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 the realization for us is that we need to see that, man, we're all sick. That may be more obvious to some than others. But realize, man, pride and judgment are hard. Man, that makes me sick. I need healing in that. I need to repent of that. Jesus came and said, man, I came to heal those who are sick. And as they sit around, verse 35 Pharisees start asking, and they're like, well, why don't y'all fast? <laughs> this was like an odd question. Like, we're sitting around having a meal, like, well, the Pharisees' disciples fast. John the Baptist's disciples fast. How come you guys aren't fasting? And Jesus says in verse 35, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, being Jesus taken from his followers. And Jesus says, and then they'll fast in those days. And then we can breeze over that passage and not realize that the time Jesus was speaking of, of the time that the bridegroom will be taken away and his people will enter into fasting is now. Like this is the time where the bridegroom has been taken from us. We are waiting for his return. And it's in this place Jesus says, my people will fast. And fasting in scripture, dare I say, was not from your phone or from your television or from your social media. Fasting was from food. And I love that in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, hey, when you give, give in this way. Hey, when you pray, pray in this way. Hey, when you fast, fast in this way. And we're like, not nah, generosity and prayer. We can hang out there, but fasting. Now Jesus says, hey, when you fast, when you pray, when you give, assuming that, hey, we, most of us, we give, right? We'll tithe or we'll, we'll give to help take care of people. We pray. We think, yeah, we can all reconcile. It's a pretty good thing that we need to do. In the same language, he says, when you fast, we're thinking, eh, not in this culture. We're in a consumeristic culture. We love to be fed. We show up to church, man, we want to be fed. 
Man, we want to be fed by a good sermon. We want to be fed by a good kids ministry. We want to be fed by a good coffee. We want to be fed all the time. And realizing, guys, we are spiritually overfed and underexercised. We are spiritually overfed and underexercised. And realizing that in many cultures, many religions, you can do a study, just look it up online. There are so many religions who fasting is a regular rhythm of the religious practice. And they're fasting to a God who is dead and doesn't exist. We serve the only, the one true, living, active, breathing God. And fasting is it's not a normal rhythm of ours. These guys are fasting and praying to a dead God. We serve the living and true God and fasting isn't a normal rhythm of us. Like that should make us uncomfortable. Like we're getting beat at our own game to a God that is dead. Man, they're devoted to it. Jesus says, no, no, no. When you fast, when you fast, the Bible's full of examples of people who fasted. You can write Couple of these down. Luke chapter 4, Jesus fasted before he began his public ministry. And Nehemiah chapter 1, we see Nehemiah fasted as he confessed his sin to God and, and sought favor uh, with the king there to go and reball, uh, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We see in Psalm 35, David fasted to ask God to intervene because of injustice. In Esther chapter 4, Mordecai fasted with the Jews when there was uh, a decree set out to kill all the Jews in the area. We see in Acts multiple places where the early church fasted while worshiping. They fasted for guidance when they appointed church leaders. Like over and over again in scripture, God's people fasted. This was fascinating to me. It's said of John Knox. John Knox was uh, the foremost leader of the Scottish Reformation. It said that John Knox fasted and prayed so much that Queen Mary of the Scots said that she feared John Knox's prayers more than she did all the armies of Europe in her time. That this dude had such a rhythm of fasting and prayer, sacrifice and surrender, worship to God through sacrificing his flesh to dig deeper and deeper, to be sharpened and more equipped by the Father, that whatever happened on the backside of his prayers was so real that she said, I am more terrified of what that guy's gonna pray for than all of the weapons and the armies that would come against our nation. Far more terrified than a, a parade of tanks coming rolling down Broad Street. For people to look at our church and say, I'm more afraid when those people pray than I am if we were to be under siege from a foreign country coming in and bombarding us with their weapons. Tanks, missiles, weapons, what is that compared to the church of God whose rhythm is fasting and prayer and that when we enter into this time of fasting and prayer together, man, stuff in the heavenly realm shakes and moves. Like when we fast, we are going to battle. We're going to battle in the spirit realm. When we pray, Paul will write, man, we don't fight just against flesh and blood, but there is this spiritual realm around us where angels and demons and light and darkness are warring against each other. And we're in the midst of it. Our reality just isn't what we can see. But there is a reality that is unseen that is warring around us. And when we sacrifice through fasting and we step into deeper prayer, we are sharpening that sword for battle. We go to war each day. Whether you realize it or not, there is a battle going on around you. 
Jesus says, hey, when you fast, what takes place when we fast? Man, you tell me. It could be different for all of us. Man, I've taken days of fasting before. I just, I remember a time where like, I remember telling Grace, I was like, I just feel like I've got these just chains. This is like these heavy shackled chains. And they're just like draped over my soul right now. I just got this inner heaviness. And I knew in that Jesus was saying, hey, fast for a day and pray for a release and healing of that. And I took one day. It's like, Lord, will you just release, whatever this is, whatever this war battle my soul, will you just remove these chains, loosen them, shatter them? Guys, I don't think, there, I don't know that there's been one day since that fast where that same attack on my soul has been felt. There's been many things where grace that we've fasted and we've prayed and we've sought the Lord for answers and, and we've, we've gone to war through fasting and prayer and stuff just moves and happens. And we, we, we would rather be fed than realizing, man, what is one day of self-sacrifice, deeper dive, pursuing God deeper, asking for healing? What is one day compared to our lifespan? And then what would happen if that one day turned into more than just January during Watch Week or during Lent? And I was like, man, I'm going to do this once every couple weeks or once a month or, or once a week. And we got to a place where our church was looked at and said, I am terrified when those people pray because when they pray, their God listens. They're not fasting and praying to a dead God with no power or ability. They're fasting and praying to a God who moves and shakes things. We, we, I was thinking at the end of service, we're going to sing the song House of Miracles. So this is a house of miracles. And thinking, no, what if this house really was a house of miracles? What if when we stepped in here through our fasting, through our praying, through our seeking God, through our intercessory, this actually became a place where real miracles of healing took place? Spiritual healings took place. Physical healings took place. What if this was a house of miracles? Really? Not just a song that we sing. And I think so much of that can be unlocked and deepened if we enter into a place of self-sacrifice, leaving everything, sacrificing a day or multiple days or a week to I'm fasting and I'm going after the heart of God. And, and, and like everything else, Jesus will look at fasting and say, hey, it's a heart thing though. It's a heart thing. Maybe fasting seems terrifying. And start with just uh, sun up to sundown. Say, I'm going to skip two meals. That's a sacrifice. Man, God will delight in that. That's a sacrifice. Maybe that goes to, man, I'm going to go 24 hours with no food. Maybe for health reasons, it's, man, I, I need some food for medication or things. You may be honest, man, I'm going to do a Daniel fast. Like, I'm going to cut out pleasurable food, if you will. I'm just going to go to the basics. Like whatever that kind of fast would be, I mean, I would say, man, pray and ask the Lord what kind of fast he would enter you into. But I don't want a fast to just be a, a once a year thing that we, we just kind of do. To where if we're not careful, our fast together one time a year can turn in more about sharing recipes for how to make cauliflower buffalo wings than it is about really seeking the Lord. Like what would it look like if we became a church who truly, truly fasted? And as we look at the leaving, when we look at who Jesus came to heal. When we look at fasting, I think this is such a, a powerful parable here that Jesus tells. Verse 37, he says, no one 
pours new wine into old wineskins. He says, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. He says, no, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. What Jesus is saying in this parable is this, the picture he's giving. In that culture when they would make wine, uh, they didn't have, sorry, they didn't have bottles. You know, they didn't have nice glass bottles or vases they would put it in. They put it in wineskin. A wineskin was uh, this leather pouch, if you will, that they would pour the wine into. And as the wine would be poured into the wineskin, into the leather, the fermentation process would begin. And so it would begin to bubble and the gases would be released and produced and, and the leather would begin to expand and contract as the fermentation process was taking place. And so Jesus looks and he says, guys, you would never take new wine and put it into an old skin because the old skin, the leather would be dried out, it would be cracked. Uh, after years, it wouldn't be pliable anymore. So he said, if you take that new wine and you put it into an old skin, when it tries to contract and expand, that leather is not pliable, so it's going to crack or it's going to burst and it's going to bust. And all the wine you've worked for is going to spill out over the ground and be ruined. He says, no, no, you would never, you would never put something new that you've worked for into something old because it's going to bust and be ruined. He said, no, you'll take something new. You'll take new pliable wineskin. That's what you'll pour the wine into. And what Jesus is saying is he says, guys, Pharisees, tax collectors, those at the table, those around the meal, he says, as long as you stay stuck in your old ways of thinking, as long as you stay stuck in your religious patterns, as long as you stay stuck in old religious uh, thinking patterns, I can't pour anything new into you because you can't hold it. Like you're not willing to receive the new wine Jesus wants to pour in when you're stuck in old ways because it's just going to crack and, and bust and we're going to throw it away and we're not going to make sense of it. And Jesus says it's going to be poured out over the ground and ruined at that time. And guys, God's not a God who wastes. And so he says, man, I want to pour out something new into you as an individual. I want to pour out something new into you as a church. But the only way God will pour that out into us is if we're willing to throw away the old ways of thinking, throw away the beliefs that God came to offer us comfort and pleasure, throw out the old ways of belief that says, man, I'm not going to sit around with those people because they're different than me. Throw out the old ways of thinking, man, it's all about being fed and I'm, I'm not willing to sacrifice in fact, we got to throw that stuff out. We've got so many religious constructs that have been built up in our minds by growing up in church for some of us. And he's saying, man, you got to throw that crap out if you want to be able to receive this new thing that I want to pour into you. The only way, the only way you can receive this newness of the kingdom of God that I want to offer you here is you've got to adopt a new way of thinking that I'm trying to teach you guys. You can't receive it otherwise. I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to try to pour something into you that I know is going to bust and pour out on the ground. I mean, I'll go down the road and I'll, I'll find somebody who says, no, no, Lord, I'm willing. Whatever you need to refine out, whatever you need to, to, to deconstruct or tear out of the, the, my, my mind, the, 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 the wrong, poor ways where I've served you or, or thought about you or, or man, I, I've created this image of who you are and, and you begin to tell me, that's not who you are at all. Like, I, I got to get rid of that. 
it's in doing so, the invitation is, I want to pour out something new into you. I want to pour out something new so that this does become a house of miracles. And realize, though, when Jesus begins to pour something new in, the fermentation process begins. And there is an expanding. There is pressure that's built up. There can be a stretching. There can be maybe some pain and some, some aches and creaks as the wineskin expands and contracts. But guys, I would rather... I would rather feel the pressure of Jesus doing something new in me than the pain of just being cracked and busted open and all being poured out and wasted. And so, Father, as we step into a time of worship, Lord, will you help us reflect? Will you speak to us where you're wanting to, to refine out? God, what are things that we need to leave? What are things that we need to sell, to, to offer up resources? What are areas that you're asking us to step away from so that we can step into greater intimacy, greater oneness, a shared meal with you? Show us, Lord, what, what, what fears are keeping us bound to old things? God, will you show us, Lord, who are the people who maybe we've, we've kind of stiff-armed and kept at an arm's distance where you're saying, no, go and invite them to your home. Invite them to your table. Go share a coffee or a meal with them. Sit around a table. They're hurting. They're sick. God, will you show us if there's any individuals in our life to where we need to go and we need to invite them into a, to a sacred, intimate space of a meal and share the love and the healing that you offer. And then, Father, I pray that you'll give us the strength, give us the courage, God, to be able to sacrifice our flesh, our desires, our hungers, and knowing that, Lord, there's, there's something that takes place deeper in the spirit realm. There's a sharpening that takes place when we fast, God, when we become a church who is accustomed to those things. Holy Spirit, come and move and have your being. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be communion on both sides of the room. We invite you to come up and take communion with your family or your loved ones. And I would, I would ask, before you come take communion, Paul will, will write, to don't hastily come to the table. But before you come to the table and receive this, the bread and the wine, the representation of that sacrifice on the cross we talked about, do some reflection. If there's anything that needs to be confessed, if there's any reconciliation that needs to take place, Paul would say, hey, man, deal with that stuff first. Like the table is open to you, but deal with, deal with any sin, deal with any confession, any reconciliation that may need to take place on the front end. You're welcome to the table. We'll have a prayer team up here who would love to lay hands on you to come and pray with you if you need uh, prayer for anything.